as uh, we will as we prepare to hear God's word and as children who and children who will be going to children's church can prepare to head out with Toby during this song. Uh, let's stand and sing Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. A song about the fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ with one another. So it's hymn two seventy-two.
all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What are we to make of Jesus Christ? C.S. Lewis wrote an essay with that title. If, you're, if you've heard of him, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a, a professor at Cambridge University in England in the first half of the 20th century. He, wrote, uh, he was an atheist for much of his adult life. And then later on, he became a Christian believer and wrote many books about that. And in this essay, he said, on the one hand, Jesus' moral teachings and example are widely respected. Right? Today, people talk about being a good Samaritan or following the golden rule or servant leadership. All of those concepts are derived directly from Jesus' example and teachings. Even people who don't follow Jesus, who aren't Christians, admire his moral teachings. So C.S. Lewis says, on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, Jesus made claims about himself that no other founder of a major religion would have ever made. Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. We saw that a couple weeks ago. He claimed to interpret the scriptures as if he himself had written them. And when he was put on trial at the end of his life, and they said to him, Are you the Son of God? He said, I am. Right? Think about that. Nobody else just, most people don't go around saying, I'm the Son of God. I have the authority to decide which sins are forgiven or not forgiven. So what are we to make of Jesus Christ? And, and what are we to make of his example and his claims about himself? C.S. Lewis said, there's really only three conclusions that, are, that people could come to. One is that Jesus was crazy. He didn't know what he was saying. He had gone mad. The second conclusion is that he knew what he was saying, but he was lying. He was a deceiver. He was evil. The third conclusion is that he was speaking the truth. He was and is the Son of God worthy of our worship. And C.S. Lewis pointed out that when people encountered Jesus, the closer they got to him, no one simply expressed mild approval. Oh, he's nice. People, he provoked all kinds of different reactions. And in the passage we're looking at, we actually see these three different reactions. We see one group of people who thought Jesus was crazy. We see one group of people who accused him of being evil. And we see a third group of people who drew near to him and sat at his feet. So I want to look at these three reactions to Jesus and what we can learn from each of these three groups and how they responded to Jesus. 
So the first group of people that we encounter in verses 20 and 21, and then again in verses 31 and 32, are Jesus' relatives who misunderstood him and thought he was crazy. Verse 20 begins, then he went home. Now probably that means he went back to Simon and Andrew's house in Capernaum, where he had been staying in chapter 1, and where he, uh, chapter 2 also refers to him being at home in Capernaum. Uh, and what, once again, just as it happened in chapter 1 and chapter 2, a crowd gathered around the house. And Jesus and his disciples were mobbed. They couldn't even sit down to eat a meal in peace, verse 20 says. And verse 21 says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, the word translated family uh, could also refer to friends or relatives, uh, not only immediate family members, uh, but verse 31 specifies that his mother and brothers came to get him. Uh, so it's probably right to translate that word in verse 21, family. Now, you might say, well, what do we know about Jesus's family? Well, we know his mother was Mary and his adoptive father was Joseph. And Joseph was there with Mary when Jesus was born. He was also there in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was 12 years old. They went up to the temple together for Passover. But then once Jesus grows up and begins his public ministry, Joseph is not, does not appear in any of the stories. And so most people, many people think that Joseph died sometime between when Jesus was 12 and when Jesus was 30 and began his public ministry. That's why he doesn't appear in any of the stories where Mary appears, like this one. Uh, Mark also refers to Jesus' brothers and sisters. So if you turn ahead to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, this is where uh, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And they say, verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So that refers to at least six siblings. Now, uh, there's been some discussion of this throughout church history. So the, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches believe, uh, for certain theological reasons, that Mary did not have any other children after she had Jesus. And so they would say that these were either, uh, Jesus' brothers and sisters were either Joseph's children from a prior marriage uh, that he had been widowed before he married Mary, or that they were Jesus' cousins or relatives, and the word brothers and sisters is used more loosely, uh, which it sometimes is in the ancient world. Uh, Protestant Christians tend to just take these statements more at face value. And uh, Matthew 1, verse 25 says that Joseph had no union with Mary until she gave birth to Jesus. Uh, but, Protest and Protest but Protestants tend to believe that Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage and had other children later on. But regardless of how you sort that out, it's actually, for, for the purposes of understanding this passage, it's not really important whether these are Jesus' immediate brothers and sisters or whether they're his cousins. The point is, they're his relatives. They're his closest relatives, and they concluded that he had gone crazy. Now, that's a rather surprising statement for Mark to make. Because by the time Mark was writing his gospel, probably 20, 30 years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' family was held in high honor among Christians. Now, Mary was sort of the most highly honored figure, but also Jesus' brother James became the main leader of the church in Jerusalem for many years. And he wrote the book of James that's in the New Testament. 
He had probably already written that book uh, by the time Mark wrote his gospel. And Jesus' brother Jude, uh, we think he also wrote that little book at the end of the New Testament called Jude, because Jude refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Uh, so you might think that Mark would only portray Jesus' family members in a positive light, right? Weren't they honored figures in the early church? But no, Mark wasn't making up a story. He was telling it like it really happened. There's no reason that Mark would have invented this uh, idea that his family thought he was crazy. Mark wouldn't have made up that verse unless it were true. So this is, again, one more reason to believe that Mark is telling us the truth because he tells us things that you just wouldn't make up. Wouldn't make sense to make up given uh, when, where he was, uh, the context of the early church. And it's not only Mark that tells us that Jesus' closest relatives didn't believe in him. At this point, uh, Gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, says the same thing. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, you might ask, well, why would Jesus' family conclude that he had gone overboard and lost his mind? Well, let me ask you this question. What would you think if your brother or your son grew up and became a controversial public figure, constantly mobbed by crowds, didn't seem to be eating or sleeping properly, verse 20 says they couldn't even eat, uh, occasionally ran off to deserted places where nobody knew where he was, was driven by a strong sense of mission and calling, but increasingly branded as a troublemaker by the ruling authorities. You might worry, right? If you were a parent or a sibling. Unless you completely trusted his judgment, you might wonder, has he gone a little bit too far? And that seems to be what Jesus' brothers concluded here. Now, it's not really clear what Mary felt. Mary seems to have trusted Jesus more than his brothers did. Uh, but Mary did come along with them. But it seems like his brothers at least said, we need to do an intervention. We need to go get him, get him away from these crowds, bring him back home for a little bit. Maybe he'll calm down and we can talk some sense into him and things won't be so crazy. closest relatives misunderstood him and thought he was crazy. Now, two implications of this point. Number one, a biological or family relationship does not automatically convey spiritual insight or privilege. You see, these were Jesus' closest relatives. They'd grown up right next to him. They had known him for longer than almost anyone else in the world, and yet here they seriously misunderstood him. Right? Now, just because someone grows up in a Christian family, or just because your parents might have been members of a church for many decades, doesn't automatically make you a believer and follower of Jesus. One person said, God has no grandchildren. Right? He only has children. Right? Grand, right? God has no grandchildren to sort of relate to him through somebody else, only through somebody else. But no, God only has 
children who belong to him and know him personally as a heavenly father. Right? No matter what family you grew up in, even if it was the holiest family in the world, you need to come to Jesus personally and trust in him personally. Because your extended family can never get you into heaven. Only Jesus can. Now, it's a great blessing to grow up in a Christian home with parents who pray for you and teach you the Bible and seek to live authentic Christian lives. We pray for our own children that they would never know a time where they didn't know Jesus. And I'm thankful as I look back at my own life, I can say that. I can say I don't remember a time when I didn't know Jesus. I was being told about him even before I knew what was happening. And God was gracious to me through that way. But you know, there isn't any mathematical formula that guarantees a desired outcome. You know, if you read the stories of families in the Bible, in Genesis or in Kings and Chronicles, there are some very godly parents who have some very ungodly children. And there are some very ungodly parents who, by God's grace, their children turn to God and become some of the leaders among the people of Israel. So a biological relationship doesn't automatically convey spiritual insight or privilege. That's the first implication of Jesus' family misunderstanding him. But second, Jesus is merciful toward, even towards people who deeply misunderstand him. Uh, now in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, the Apostle Paul lists a series of people who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. So he starts with Peter. Jesus appeared to Peter. Peter had denied Jesus right before his death. And Jesus appeared to Peter after his resurrection, reinstated him. He lists the 12, 12 disciples, a big group of 500. And then he says, James. And people wonder, well, which James? Is it James, one of the 12 disciples? Well, no, he just listed the 12 earlier in the list. So it wouldn't make sense to list James after the 12 when James had already been appeared to as part of the 12. Most likely this was Jesus' brother, who not long ago had thought he was crazy. And Jesus, after his resurrection, specifically went to him and appeared to him and said, I'm alive again. And that seems to have been the turning point for James and the rest of Jesus' brothers because in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus' brothers uh, and perhaps sisters appear with the rest of Jesus' disciples for the first time when they're praying together in the upper room. So while Jesus was on earth publicly preaching and teaching, his brothers thought he was crazy. But after his resurrection, they joined the early church. They said, he's the risen Lord. Our brother, who we thought had gone overboard, their minds were changed. Isn't that so interesting? Right? It took that long for Jesus' closest family members to finally get it. And yet, isn't that so encouraging? Jesus was merciful, even toward his brothers who had grown up with him, who should have known him better than anyone else. And for 33 years, they thought he, they, 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 they didn't yet get it. Jesus even took the time to appear personally to one of them, to James, who became, again, the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. 
So let me encourage you, if you have family members who deeply misunderstand you or deeply misunderstand Jesus, don't give up on them. Even if it's been 10, 20, 30, or more years. If you have relatives who think that you have lost your mind, well, you may not be able to persuade them to think otherwise. You may not be able to change them. But you can keep walking with Jesus. You can keep praying for them and bringing them before Jesus. And pray that God would do what only God can do and be encouraged that Jesus is merciful even toward people who deeply misunderstand him for a long time. So that's the first response to Jesus that we see. His relatives misunderstood him and thought he was crazy. The second response that we see is from the scribes, the religious scholars who come from Jerusalem, and they say, they accuse him of being evil. Verses 22 to 30. So this is a delegation of scribes Influential religious scholars who travel all the way from Jerusalem, and they start saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul literally means something like demon prince, so it's either referring to Satan or some other sort of arch demon. Um, most likely it's just another name for Satan, and uh, they're saying Jesus is possessed by Satan, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. This is a very serious, it's about as, as bad of an accusation as you can think of. They're accusing Jesus of being completely evil, satanic, taken over by the devil. Now notice what the scribes didn't dispute. They agreed that Jesus had cast out demons. By the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. So they weren't just saying, oh, we're skeptical, we don't think his miracles were real, we haven't seen enough evidence. No! They acknowledge freely, Jesus is casting out evil spirits. There was no debate about that. There was no lack of evidence. But their conclusion was, Jesus is empowered by Satan himself. And in verses 23 through 29, Jesus calls them together, and he First begins by demonstrating how irrational their conclusion is. Verses 23 through 26, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that kingdom can't, won't be able to stand. It's like starting a civil war within your own country. It would be an entirely counterproductive strategy for Satan to, to pursue. Now, as a side note, Abraham Lincoln drew on verse 25. Some people think that Abraham Lincoln came up with that idea of a house divided can't stand, but no, Abraham Lincoln got that from the Bible. And he applied it to the situation of the United States in the 1850s. So Jesus began by demonstrating how irrational the scribe's conclusion was. It doesn't make any sense that he's driving out demons and liberating people from, from uh, evil spirits freeing them to live whole and healthy and pure lives by the power of Satan? Of course not. It just doesn't make any sense. But then in verse 27, he indicated what was really going on. Verse 27, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. You might say, well, what does that verse mean? It's sort of compact, but it's got a lot in it. 
Now, verses 24 to 25, Jesus has already portrayed Satan as the ruler of a kingdom or house. And that would have been a familiar idea to many of Jesus' followers, because many Jewish people at the time, uh, drawing on some teachings from the Old Testament, would have understood that this present world is sort of a kingdom of darkness, spiritual darkness, and that ever since Adam and Eve followed Satan's advice in the Garden of Eden that this world has, uh, Satan has gained a foothold in this world and he maintains that foothold through intimidation and fear and deception and lies. But Jesus had come to deliver people from that kingdom of darkness and bring them in to God's kingdom of truth and light and love and freedom. So Jesus came to bind the strong man, that is Satan, right? So you think, uh, no one can enter Satan's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds Satan. That's what Jesus was doing in ordering the evil spirits to leave, authoritatively directing them what to do, and uh, it was, was taking hold, uh, uh, binding Satan, and liberating people who had been held captive by him. So when Jesus cast out demons, he was freeing people from the power of Satan, bringing them under the liberating rule of God. So verse 27, uh, it's, it's, it's basically Jesus expressing, this is what I've come to do. And then Jesus goes on in verses 28 through 29 to give a severe warning. So first he's saying, saying that I'm empowered by Satan is completely irrational. Actually, I've come to overpower Satan and drive him out and release people from his grip. And then Jesus goes on to give a severe warning to the scribes. Let me read verses 28 and 29 again, uh, because these verses often raise a lot of concern for people. So truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, these verses have caused concern for many people. And I can think of a couple of times people have come to me and, and said, I'm worried that I've committed this sin that verse 29 is talking about, that I've said terrible things against God and against the Holy Spirit, and maybe I can never be forgiven. So we need to look carefully at what these verses are saying, because a lot of people, at one time or another, have been troubled by them. Now, what should we do? What's the first thing we should do whenever we read a difficult verse in the Bible? We should look at the context, right? Don't just take that one verse, but look at the context. Um, and Mark actually tells us in verse 30, he sort of gives us a reminder. Why did Jesus say this? Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In fact, Mark doesn't usually make these kind of extra editorial comments explaining why Jesus said what he said at the time, but here he does. Probably because Mark realized people could, could easily misunderstand this if they ignore the context, and so he reminds us why Jesus said what he said. Right? The scribes had seen clear evidence of Jesus' power to deliver people from demonic oppression. They had seen clear evidence that Jesus was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit himself, but they absolutely rejected him and accused him of being completely evil. And so Jesus gave them a severe 
warning. Now, verse 28, all kinds of sins and blasphemies. So the word blasphemy just means slanderous words against God. Simple way to define it. Slanderous words against God. All kinds of sins and blasphemies can be forgiven. That's actually an encouraging word. But verse 29 is the warning. There's one kind of blasphemy that can never be forgiven. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And notice that those words, that word never and eternal, they go together. We'll come back to that. So the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the truth about Jesus, who enables us to turn to him and be forgiven. But here's the thing. If someone persistent, permanently rejects the witness of the Holy Spirit and becomes just more and more hostile toward Jesus, no matter how much evidence is presented to them, they continue in their rejection of Jesus forever, then they will never have forgiveness. Because they're rejecting the only one who can forgive them of all their sins. So verse 29 is not talking about someone who says something bad about Jesus or about the Holy Spirit, and then later on feels sorry for what they said and changes their mind and asks for forgiveness. That's not what verse 29 is talking about. It's talking about an eternal sin. I think that means a sin that just continues, that someone never repents of. That they are continually in that state of mind and persist in that for all eternity. It's not a temporary sin that someone later repents of, but a spiritual state that becomes fixed and hardened. And Jesus was warning the scribes because they were dangerously close to passing that point of no return. They had seen all the evidence you could want, right? People who had been liberated from evil spirits by the power of Jesus. They could hear Jesus' teaching. They could ask him questions, but they don't do any of that. They go around publicly accusing him of being completely evil. I mean, what more could you say to them? What more could you give them? They had all that they needed to see who Jesus really was. And they accuse him of being completely evil. And Jesus says, you are in great danger because the way you are speaking and behaving shows that your heart is deeply hardened. And, and there is a point of no return where you become so hardened that you can never that you never want to turn again. Now, getting back to the worry that people sometimes have, so you might say, How do I know if I or somebody else comes to you and is worried about this? How do I know if I or someone else has committed this sin? And one answer is, if you're worried that you've committed this sin, then you have not committed it. The scribes were not worried about what they were saying. They were just going around accusing Jesus of being completely evil. They felt nothing wrong about doing that. So if you've said terrible things in a fit of rage, repent and know Because 1 John 1, 9, as well as verse 28 in this passage, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness because Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And his blood covers anyone and everyone who turns to him. 
So this is a strong warning against having a hardened heart, but there's an invitation to come to Jesus and know anyone who repents and turns to him will be forgiven. So we've seen Jesus' relatives who misunderstand him. We've seen the scribes who reject him and say he's completely evil. But finally, we see a third group in verses 33 through 35. We see people who gather around Jesus and sit at his feet. You know, if you think about it from a human perspective and you think who would be most likely to be the ones who would believe and trust in Jesus, some people might think, well, his relatives who grew up with him. But no, they're not the ones who, they take a long time to get it, and they get it long after others. You might think the scribes, because they're religious scholars. They studied the Bible. They knew the Bible better than most people. You might think they would get it. But no, they were the most hardened of all. And they showed no sign of turning. But, there's this group of people that Mark doesn't even tell us exactly who it is. He just calls them a crowd. Verse 32, the crowd was sitting around him. Verse 34, those who sat around him. There are people who gather around Jesus and listen and receive his words. Now it's interesting. Normally we would expect that Jesus' family would be on the inside of the house and the crowd would be on the outside. But it's the reverse. His mother and brothers are standing outside, and the crowd is inside, sitting at his feet. And we normally expect that if Jesus is being relayed a message, your mother and your brothers are looking for you, that he would immediately interrupt his teaching and go out and show respect to his family. But he doesn't. Again, it's sort of surprising. He says, who are my mother and my brothers here? Are my mother? brothers, whoever does the will of God, no matter what your family background, no matter how much you know about the Bible already, if you come and sit at Jesus' feet, he says, you belong to the family of God. There's a place for you. You're not an outsider. You're my brother and sister and mother. In other words, we're all together in the family of God when we come and sit Jesus is redefining what it means to truly belong to the family of God. You remember last week when Jesus called the twelve and there were two halves of his calling, but the first half was just to be with him, and later on it's to be sent out. But the first half is, Jesus called his disciples to be with him, and that's what this crowd of people is doing. They're just sitting around Jesus, being with him, listening to his word, receiving his teaching, enjoying his presence. And so Jesus says, you've got it. That's it. Yes, you're my brother, sister, and mother. You see, as we look at these three different responses to Jesus, I want us to end by considering, where am I? How have I responded to Jesus? You know, Jesus' relatives might have assumed we know him best, but they didn't. So there's sometimes a warning that if we think we know him well, maybe we sometimes need to think again. And the scribes were very confident in their own education and their own learning and their own thinking and their 
own religious achievements, and they were very far off the mark. But those who gathered around Jesus, no matter who they were, Mark doesn't even tell us exactly who they were, but the point is anyone who gathers around Jesus, if we come to him and sit at his feet, he will receive us. that's the invitation, is that we come to him and be with him and listen to him and know that he accepts us. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we pray that we would simply be like these people, come and sit at your feet, and know that we belong to you, not because of our learning, not because of our background, our family that we were born into, but because you have received us by your grace. Thank you that there is a place in your family for everyone who comes to you. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is that you offer to us. We pray that, pray that we would receive and delight in that 